Let me open in prayer. Heavenly Father, I ask that you would open up our ears. May we hear with our hearts today a, a timely message, a message from you, from your word. May we hear it and be encouraged. May we find hope. May we continue on in faith. By the power of your spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. Many are wondering what kind of time it is. This question, what time is it, is kind of like what I want to go through a little today. When we ask what time is it, depending on the situation or the context, we, we could be asking different things, right? If you are abruptly woken in the middle of the night and it's pitch black outside, you are going to, what time is it? You're asking a particular question and you're most likely going to be frustrated or quite upset that your sleep has been interrupted. Or if you're kind of like me, um, it's Friday evening and you've worked a pretty long 11, close to 12-hour day sometimes, and you are ready to go home. You will ask, what time is it? And you're, you know, you're ready to clock out and you're ready to go home. Uh, these, what time is it, this, this, this question of what time is it, is told by looking at a clock. And we see it, and we, and we desire for, we desire to know what time it is. It's loaded with emotions and with thoughts and implications. That question, what time is it, also deals not only with time that is told by a watch, but time that is told by calendars and histories. And when we look at this question of what time is it, we need to think and to know that this question has great implications for how we read and study the Scripture. When we get into Scripture, this is a fundamental question that we need to ask. We often forget, and it seems sometimes when we read certain stories in Scripture that we feel completely removed from them. Today's scripture reading could be one that seems kind of removed from us. A story of, or in Daniel in particular. The story of King Nebuchadnezzar sees a vision uh, of a tree, the part of the story that we didn't read in our text prior to that. Story of a tree where it's a big giant tree placed right in the middle of the world and it has branches that go out all over. Birds from everywhere are finding uh, nests in these branches. Animals from all over the world are finding shade under their branches. And then he has a vision, and Daniel comes, and he tells him, King, you are the tree, and you are the one who's going to be chopped down. And, and then 
strangely enough, God uses this weird punishment of making Nebuchadnezzar turn animal-like. He makes us lose his mind, and he goes off and he lives in the wilderness with the animals for a time period. And we can read this story, and if we're unsure of what time it is, we can feel completely removed from it, have a hard time understanding what exactly it is that this story is trying to tell us. N.T. Wright encourages us, and as good evangelical Anglicans, anything that N.T. Wright says, we need, to, we need to pay attention to that. He encourages us to ask this fundamental question of what time is it? But he's asking us to ask, what time is it now? You and I, as readers of the Scriptures, we are interpreters of the Scriptures. We are reading in order to determine where exactly do we fit in the story of the Bible. The purpose of this question is to help us engage the scriptural text and to understand at a greater level that we are very much in the same story of God's redemption now, just as the exilers, the, the, the Hebrews in exile in Babylon were part of God's story. So, I believe like Wright that when we thoughtfully interpret our current historical and local, local context, we will see that we are involved very much in God's mission. God is not off of his throne like the, like the song that we sang. He is he's seated on his throne. And when we look in this text, we will find wisdom and hope, just like I believe the exiled Hebrews did when they heard this story of King Nebuchadnezzar losing his mind. So before I get into asking the question of what time is it, I want to give a sketch of where we're going. I want us to look at what time is it now for us. We'll look at our particular context. And then I want to see, uh, and sh I want to show how our context is very similar to the context of the exiled Hebrews in Babylon. We'll see how they mesh together. And then I want to see, I want to show just how God is looking to give us hope. Just like he was reaching out to the Hebrews in exile to give them hope. So what time is it? Many of us think, if you're like me, that this is a scary question to ask. Especially in light of all that we're dealing with. It is indeed a troubling time, I, I would say. Much of what we see on a daily basis is far from what we as Christians would desire for our world, right? We wouldn't be wrong or out of line to constantly cry out like the psalmist does, how long, O oh God, right? That is a, a constant prayer that we probably see and have in our, in our devotional time. How long will we be left to witness humans hurting other humans? How long will we be left to witness the strong overpowering the weak? 
the wise taking advantage of the slow, the rich neglecting the poor. Countless newspapers, magazine articles, social media uh, snippets, our personal conversations with our friends and family members all articulate a very common mindset, a mindset of growing fear and a feeling of hopelessness that is in our country and really in our entire global world. In our current election cycle, uh, we're coming up real soon on the election of our new president. And the polls show that neither candidate available for one of the most powerful positions in our world today are viewed in a favorable light. No one's super, super excited about one of them. Uh, one man interviewed a couple of weeks ago, I saw this, and this man said that in a country of 320 million people, a virtual leader, our country being a virtual leader in all aspects of commerce, technology, military, humanities, and sciences, that these are the two best candidates that we can come up with. He was a bit, he was a bit frustrated and worried. A friend of mine on Facebook, you probably, if you scroll through your Facebook feed, you, you'll probably see um, at least a handful of these same concerns. A friend of mine posted the other day, um, really serious, he w wasn't joking, very seriously, asking for his Facebook community to give him insight in how to vote. He's just really confused and upset about the options and about where he sees our, our country going. But this isn't a political sermon, I promise. Um, perhaps in a way it can be, or maybe it should be. If by the end of it we are better postured, we're situated in a better way to lift up Jesus as king and to really focus on his kingdom coming to earth, then this is a political sermon. I'll give you that. Because we need that. We need to keep our eyes focused on Christ and his king, him as king and his kingdom. But it's not, however, only the unfortunate presidential candidates that we have that are striking us with fear and anxiety in our world today. We, we have this very strange, instant capability of seeing news immediately. Anybody who has a smartphone can immediately take a video of something horrible happening and post it, and we have it right that instant. This ability to capture the news in such a way has really set us up as a people who are just anxious. We know that at any moment we can, we can see the next mass shooting. Somebody who gets their hand on a military-grade weapon who shouldn't and takes many lives. Uh, we can see at any uh, moment or hear about at any moment another unjust police shooting of, uh, of oppressed minorities. Or we can constantly watch religious, religiously motivated, politically motivated people trying to cause terror 
by taking many, many lives. And you've probably seen this uh, over the last couple of weeks, maybe, maybe months. Your, your, the news, uh, the mailings that you get in your mailbox, the politically driven propaganda that we have. I received two last week. One of them read, uh, ISIS is a real threat to America. And there was this very you know, graphic picture of terrorists um, in a very scary picture, you know, really looking to incite fear. The other one said, uh, terror is at your doorstep. I mean, the, the political marketers, they know what time it is in our country. They know what we're afraid of. They know that we're a people like just stuck in fear. We're terrified, and they're playing on it. And sadly, this is what time it is. Before you come to the conclusion that I have completely ruined our day and <laughs> by uh, reminding us that, uh, of the crazy time that we live in history, uh, please fear not. Um, this isn't a place of fear for us, right? I don't plan to leave us here, and neither does the Scriptures. And this is the connection that we have, I believe, with the captives in Babylon, the Hebrew people exiled in Babylon. So like the, like the exiled people in Babylon, who are probably more so fearful than us, right? I mean, just last week we read in chapter 3 that uh, their king the person that he wasn't voted in, obviously. But their king, we probably don't have to worry about what he did. The person that we elect is probably not going to fire up a giant idol furnace and threaten us to, threaten us to, uh, or threaten to throw us in if, if we don't bow down. We pro as bad as it is in America, my friends, it's probably not going to be that bad. All right, so there's hope in that. But the story of King Nebuchadnezzar, uh, this particular one, is, is great. It's full of intrigue, and there's a lot that can be learned from it. When we read it one way, we get a very good individual devotional lesson out of it. At the very end of this chapter, we hear from the words of Nebuchadnezzar himself, the at the time, the most powerful man on the planet, that God is able to humble the proud. Okay? King Nebuchadnezzar, he went up onto the top of his, the pinnacle of his house, this, this massive, we could imagine, um, palace that he has, that he built, and he proclaims to the world, look at me, I am powerful. Look at all that I have built. And this lesson that we learn that God can humble the proud is a very important one. We learn that everything is a gift from God. Everything. All good gifts in this world are from God. 
and we cannot forget it. Even the pagan king, there was nothing given to him that God did not give to him. Paul understands this in the New Testament, and he teaches it to the people in Corinth. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, he says, For what makes you different, or what makes you superior? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, why do you boast as if you don't? We can just imagine this going on with Nebuchadnezzar, God saying, look at all, you, th- you built all this. No, you received it from a God more powerful than you. Why do you boast as if you don't, or why, as if you didn't receive it? This lesson, uh, this lesson of letting our pride get the best of us, not letting our pride get the best of us, is an important one to learn, especially in today's culture. There is a real great danger in thinking too highly of ourselves and of our own accomplishments. It's very easy to get wrapped up in what the culture you know, says as material gain is the is the way of life. We make idols out of virtually everything. Our jobs, our families, our finances. Like I said, it's easy to do what the surrounding culture tells us to do. And we're indeed called to work hard. I'm not getting at that. You work hard and you can... God actually wants us to enjoy the benefits of this world that he has created. When he created the world, he said that this this is good. But what is not good is making it an idol. And so in Jesus' prayer, in the Lord's prayer, when he says, pray this way, give us, Lord, our daily bread, our our daily portion, it is an effective method of protecting us from ourselves. Jesus knows that we, just like King Nebuchadnezzar will easily fall into the trap of believing that we, by our own power, our own intelligence, our own skill, we provide for ourselves. And if we're not careful, we will end up climbing up to the pinnacle of our so-called kingdoms that we have built for ourselves. And we will look over the people and we will make judgments on those who we think we are better than, and we will say, look how great I am. The worst part, an inevitable end of this line of thinking, however, is not that we just build ourselves up. It's that we tear Jesus down. We end up thinking that we ourselves can take care of our own redemption. Whether for the atheist or non-believer, It is that material achievement, that growth, that climbing the social ladder is their means of salvation. They can take what the world has and manipulate it for their own good. For the religiously motivated person, righteous deeds are accumulated. We work hard and we work hard and we work hard and we work hard thinking that building up our storehouses of righteous deeds will save ourselves. Both the non-believer and the religious motivated person are doing the same thing. They're removing God from the picture of redemption. And so this lesson, this story of King Nebuchadnezzar being humbled by God, 
being cut down to size, and then the proclamation by King Nebuchadnezzar that God is able to humble the proud is indeed an important lesson. But it's not necessarily the lesson that I think I want us to see out of this story today. Remember we asked ourselves what time it is, and I painted this really bleak picture of it is a very bad time. We are very fearful. Uh, We're scared. We're anxious about the future. I think we can ask what time it is for the Hebrews, and we can see where we might line up with them. By the time we get to the story of King Nebuchadnezzar and his losing his mind and his proclamation that God can humble the, the proud, they've been in exile for some time. And we can only imagine the feelings that they must have been feeling. Their, their faith must have been waning. Their hope must have been uh, faltering. I mentioned before in chapter 3, we saw the ruthless character of King Nebuchadnezzar. His willingness to just fly off the handle and murder anybody who didn't bow down to him, that would incite some crazy amount of fear. But when the Hebrews were miraculously unharmed by the intense fire, King Nebuchadnezzar came to some kind of understanding that Yahweh, the national God of Israel, was in fact the more powerful God. And we would hope, we would have hoped that this realization would have taken a deeper root in King Nebuchadnezzar, but we just don't get that picture. This story is not meant only for King Nebuchadnezzar. I believe that this story was inserted into the text here in the book of Daniel in order to provide hope and encouragement to a very fear-driven and anxiety-ridden people who are in exile, whose faith had been faltering and who had lost hope. They see this powerful King Nebuchadnezzar and all that he had built, and he stands up on the pinnacle of his tower, and he says, look at me, I am God. I wonder, if, I wonder if the people in exile were beginning to believe that. I wonder if they were losing their hope that God would indeed redeem them, restore them, and give them their land and their kingdom back. Jeremiah was a prophet during the time of the exile in Babylon, and his text in Jeremiah 29, it is a letter to the exiles. Most of your English, our English Bibles will have that as the header, Jeremiah's letter to the exiles. And in it, we get a very good picture. In chapter 29 and chapter 30, we get a very good picture of what is going on in in Babylon at the time, and the feelings that the, the people of Israel would have been feeling. Jeremiah 29, it says this, This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all of those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. 
Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Time out. We just learned that their time period in exile is not very good. They have a king who throws people into fiery furnaces, who later we learn in Daniel throws people into a pit of starving lions. This is not a wonderful time or place to be. Yet God asks them to seek the peace and prosperity of this city. He asks them to pray for the king that is oppressing them. It's very interesting. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. This portion of the letter from Jeremiah to the exiles was written in order to correct a false prophecy that had been given to them. We learn of a couple of chapters before this. Uh, Hananiah gave this prophecy that the yoke of Babylon would be broken and after only two years in exile, you will be set free and you will come home. And the people were like, yes, only two years of exile? It's kind of like a, a bad vacation. But this was obviously false. It wouldn't be two years. It would be much longer than that. It would be long enough to build houses and to plant gardens. It would be long enough to have children and to grow and, and, and to become strong and increase in numbers. It wasn't going to be two years. And listening to the false hope of these prophecies that say it's only going to be a short time. Jeremiah heard from God and he needed to correct that. And in chapter 30, we get more of God's, uh, the vision of what exile might have been like and the promise of the restoration. These are the words, this is chapter 30, 4 through 6. These are the words of the Lord spoken concerning Israel and Judah. This is what the Lord says. Cries of fear are heard, terror, not peace. Ask and see, can a man bear children? Then why do I see every strong man with his hands on his stomach like a woman in labor? Every face is pale. This is a Again, a bleak picture of what life was like for them in exile. And we hear that, cries of fear, terror, not peace. And they were encouraged to pray for their city and for this time period, but 
They said, it said that they would prosper if the city prospered, but, but prospering in exile is hardly living a life that you want. It's hardly living a life of having your own land that has been promised to you by God. And this is where we, as the church, find our connection with the people of God and Babylonian captivity. We, after painting our picture of what time it is today and seeing what time it was for the exiles in Babylon, we share a common thread with them. We long for a time when the promises of God would be fulfilled. We long for a time when, when like I said in that makeshift psalm I, I made, that prayer I made, that humans will stop hurting humans. The rich will stop overpowering the poor, take advantage of the weak. And just as the Hebrews were sent into exile to Babylon, we, the church, the people, the new covenant people of God, are living in a spiritual yet very real exile, just like they are, just like they were. Now, we, we weren't forced away from our homeland like the Israelites were, but after our interaction with the gospel and the Spirit of God, our identities have, fundamental, have fundamentally changed. Because we have taken on the name of the identity, the name and identity of Christ, we will remain exiles until the second coming of God. Until Christ comes again to make all things new, we will live in a spiritual type of exile. This is something very important for us to realize. This is pretty much what the entire letter of 1 Peter is. It is a letter to exiles living in a foreign land because of the fundamental change of heart and identity that you have by having Christ and His Spirit live within you. And his letter, the, the letter that Peter wrote to the people all over, is a letter of encouragement and hope. It instructs us on how to live in this time of exile. As we seek to live out our identities in Christ, we will surely be at set, we will surely be set at odds against the prevailing culture around us. Just like Daniel, another connection, just like Daniel and his friends were. When they wanted to live under their value system, under their principles, under the law of God, when they decided to live that way, they were set at odds against the Babylonians. And they were threatened to be thrown into a fire. They were thrown into a fire, literally. Where our culture sets up individual kingdoms, it praises self-saving individuals who work hard for their own glory God's kingdom is full of people who work for his or, her, his or her neighbor. We do not seek our own glory, but we seek the glory of the true God. We refuse to bow down to any of the idols that our culture sets up, and we lift Christ up above all other names. And when we live in such a way, we're bound to run into problems with our surrounding culture. 
Today we have seen that our situation, full of fear and anxiety, uh, the propaganda we receive in our mail makes that continue on in our hearts. If it's not the systemic racism that we obviously are watching, if it's not class-oriented oppression or terrorism or mass shootings, it's other things that let us know that we're still in a fallen and broken world. It's extreme financial challenges that we are facing or our family members are facing. We see family members getting sick and not getting better. We experience difficult marriages and, or troubled children. All of these times of trouble, they put us right in the middle of this continuing saga of God bringing redemption to the world. It points out the reality that we are indeed exiles living in a strange land. God's people were sent into exile and placed under the harsh reality of King Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. Yet God sent continual, countless, word after word, like we read in Jeremiah, and miracle after miracle, like the, 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 the saving out of the fiery furnace, the saving out of the mouth of the lion's den, the mouths of the lion and the den. Miracle after miracle after miracle shows that God is in charge. The story of Nebuchadnezzar's dream, him as the mighty tree cut down to a stump then made to live like the animals with a mind of the animals, was not only to bring Nebuchadnezzar to some realization that he is in fact not God. It was a sign and a hope, a booster of faith for God's people living in exile. This sovereign act of God showed his people that he was, in fact, still in charge. They needed to not fear their oppressor, the neglector of their needs, but maintain faith in him and the one who promised them a future. He's the one who has plans for them, a plan to prosper them, and to give them their land. And through this mighty act, God not only humbling a humble king or a proud king, but he exiled the exiler. The one who had been oppressing the people of God the one who went to their country, ripped them from their homeland, and brought them and oppressed them in their place, this foreign and strange land full of different values and principles. They were losing hope and faith, but God said, no. I will exile the exiler. And he removed King Nebuchadnezzar from the people of humanity. He gave them a mind like the animals and said, I am God, not you. The people that are under your care right now, you're not taking very good care of them. You must take care of them as I would take care of them. So just as God has used this 
story to promote hope and dispel the fear of the people of God in exile, we too can read and know that we are engaged very much in this story just like the Hebrews were. God is in control. We can rip up the propaganda that comes in our mail. We need not fear or be anxious about the times. We don't really need to worry about the person who gets elected. It's important. It's very important. But we don't need it to cripple us with fear and anxiety. We are the people of God, and God is in control. We shouldn't fear sickness and death because God has given us eternal life in Christ. And though the world may be raging in a storm around us, we must remain steadfast in our hope. He is able to save us from the fire. He is able to humble the proud kings that set themselves up over us. And as we live in this world, let us keep our eyes focused upward towards Christ. He's our king, and there is no other. I want to close with a prayer that I love so much. It's one of my favorite prayers. The prayer of St. Francis of Assisi. I believe it shows an excellent contrasting way of life between those who find themselves motivated by Christ and his kingdom and his virtuous way of living and what he cares about and what it might have been like in exile what the prevailing culture might do. So I'm going to pray this for us and we'll be done. Lord, make me an instrument of thy peace. Where there is hatred, let me so love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. O Divine Master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying to ourselves that we are born to eternal life.